0: My name is Sam and this is PhDs for Dummies. Hello everyone, Uh, it has been a while since the last episode, but hey, uh, we have a very interesting guest today. Uh, we're going to listen to Roberta Har, uh, who is a professor of foreign policy analysis and transatlantic relations at the University College in Maastricht. Uh, she's published a great bit on, on transatlantic relations and foreign policy analysis. Uh, doesn't really surprise you, I, w- <laughs> I suppose. Um, we'll, be take a- we'll be talking about her dissertation on Germany's behavior in the post-Cold War period. And Roberta furthermore explains why... Academic theory is so essential for social scientists, and uh, especially the last part is, I think, very valuable for everyone who studies something in the social sciences. Um, For now, uh, enough talking from my part, and um, enjoy the episode. Good morning, Roberta. Um, First of all, thank you so much for um, being on the show. Um, For the people I know you, but um, the listeners maybe do not, um, can you maybe tell us a bit about yourself, and um, how did you end up in Maastricht, of all places, from the US?
1: Yes, well, thank you, Sam, very much for inviting me to be part of your podcast. I think it's a wonderful initiative that you're doing, and I enjoyed uh, listening to your previous podcast. Uh, well, I work now at University College, Maastricht, already for seventeen years. Uh, one of the first, I was the first person hired at ECM that was not support staff, so purely. Well, oh, that's an
0: achievement. Staff. That's an achievement.
1: <laughs> well, I definitely think that the development of the college. And what we are today is I played a, a role in that. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm very proud of that. But I came to Mastricht by um, uh, Prague and Budapest, actually. I came from the further east. My husband was um, head of the international relations department at the Central European University. Perhaps you know. See yeah, you? I think
0: it's, it's in Budapest, right? That's right. It used to yeah. have
1: branches in Warsaw and in Prague okay. uh, in 1995 when we went there. Um, but over the... Um, well, the founder, uh, George Soros, uh, had a bit of an argument with people in in Prague, Václav Havel and Václav Klaus. Uh, they were the ones who were the leaders there at the time. And so they had to move in the middle of an academic year from Prague to Budapest. So so I spent, I, ha- I spent six months in Prague and two years in Budapest. Um, and of course, now CEU is really well known for uh, Victor Orban, Is recently yeah. shut down in Budapest. So it's, it's exactly. very well known. So, I, yes, I had two years of working uh, affiliated with the CEU uh, before I came to Maastricht. And at the end of 97, my husband uh, took a one year position. Uh, at the European Institute of Public Administration, where uh, Sophie van Huneker, who was uh, just you now dean of the of Fazos, the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at Mossberg mm-hmm. University, she was working there, and he took a one-year position when she was on went on a leave of absence uh, with her husband to New York City. So we came here for a one-year contract, and seventeen and stayed, years stayed later, for... <laughs> <I'm> still <here.
0: laughs> you're still here. Yet, yeah. um, so then you. Okay. you you started a position as like a teaching fellow or like a lecturer at, at the University College Maastricht or?
1: Well, when we came, I was still finishing my dissertation, which I, uh, my, my master's and my PhD are from Penn State in the uh, middle of Pennsylvania. Okay. And so I was finishing my dissertation and then when I finished it, I heard about a position working for the, uh, part of a university that was doing things with European studies and it's a center for European studies, uh, they still exist. And so I started giving an, uh, lectures for them, doing ad hoc, uh, sort of a, a yeah, uh, doing lectures that I did it for three years. I w- did mm-hmm. many lectures on international relations and European foreign policy, European integration, those sorts of things. And Louis who bon, who is the founding dean of UCM, heard about me and then asked me to apply for the job at UCM. That's how, it, how okay. I started at UCM. That's and really so cool. I, yeah. So I, I finished my dissertation uh, when we arrived. Uh, I also found out that not long after you arrived, I was pregnant. So um, so I sort of had in the beginning, you know, raising two little boys and lecturing at Central Euro- uh, you know, for Boston uh, University. And then starting at at UCM. In Fair enough. That sounds like a very
0: that sounds like a very busy uh, busy period. Um, we kindly for you you briefly touched upon <clears throat> your dissertation that was still um, uh, bound to the Midwest University of Pennsylvania, right? Um, yes. And I took a look at it, and um, I think the title is "Nation States as Schizophrenics." Um, I think that's a rather boldly unconventional title for a dissertation. Uh, uh, Can you maybe tell a bit more on on what the dissertation was about and uh, how come you were so intrigued by the topic?
1: Yes. Well, actually, I really regret that title. I don't like that (laughs) title. Okay. (laughs) But, But after I defended my dissertation, I was approached by Prager publishers to turn my dissertation into a book. They really mm-hmm. like a topic that was very at that time very contemporary, very very relevant. To because what was it on? It's on it's on German foreign policy, uh, Cold War foreign policy. Okay, fair. Enough. And uh, then I did a comparative study with Japan. I wouldn't say I'm really a Japanese foreign policy expert, but it really made sense to do this comparison because they had similar post. Deep,
0: uh, deep scars yeah, yeah
1: and also that they had been occupied by uh the well the united states and so that at least half of it in the case of germany so it made really a lot of sense to do this comparative study of the of how they their foreign policy had developed after the second world war and then how it was now developing after the cold war and i was really thinking about um well how do i how do i theoretically try to understand their foreign policy And Prager had asked me to make my very theoretical dissertation into Mm -hmm. a more appealing work for a general audience. And I had to also add some content, sort of recent events on the Kosovo war. But it was my husband's suggestion that I use the word schizophrenic.
0: (laughs) Well, at least it strikes the attention. (laughs) Yes,
1: well, I I was trying to capture the fact that from a theoretical standpoint, post-Cold War Germany and Japan were not behaving in ways that realists would predict. So I was trying to capture that sort of this this way that that theory was failing what was happening, what we saw in the behavior of these two nation states. That's what I was trying to do.
0: Okay, I see. Um, so you you mentioned that you emphasized, uh, or at least that the, uh, uh, your dissertation was very emphasizing the theory Um And I think you used the environmental model. Can you maybe tell a bit more about that and maybe also for the audience, maybe a quick um, summary of what this this model uh, uh, entails?
1: Yes, well, what I was trying to do is capture the complexity of the environment with these two actors existed. So often in the courses that you know, you've taken with me, I use levels of analysis and sometimes levels of analysis, you can do three (laughs) levels, international domestic and individual or you can add to that governmental and role but this is even more complex than that i was really trying to capture what's going on with these countries what do you explain um how do you explain their behavior Mm -hmm. um and you you had asked me uh, previously about is this environmentalism environmental model just like another way of of theory of constructivism
0: Yeah, yeah exactly and
1: i But And I think that in some ways you're right because both this environmental model and constructivism is trying to critique realism and the fact that realism doesn't explain why Germany and Japan are acting the way they are. Despite that they are great powers, certainly economically, they had recovered completely by the end of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. and They had leading global economies. But nevertheless, there was no inclination on either part to become military powers again. So you know, what, why you know, realists would say that they would do that, right? Realists would say the world is anarchic.
0: The international
1: they... <coughs> system is anarchic, yeah. and that this anarchic behavior will determine what states do, and, and which liberalists...
0: then build up like military, right? Or well, least... they
1: would, would, they would be fearful, right? Yeah. They no, would... no. Now, liberalism would say we see cooperation, and liberalism would try to explain why we have cooperation in the world despite the fact that the world is anarchic. Yep. Yeah. So it tries to explain why states do in fact cooperate. So on the one hand, you have realism saying anarchic world is driving what states do. Liberalism is saying, well, they nevertheless cooperate. And constructivism is also saying, well, constructivism is taking this stance of, well, what states do depends on what they see.
0: Yep, right? exactly. Do they see yeah. the
1: world as cooperative? Then they'll be more like a liberalist. They'll take a liberalist view or behave like a liberal state. Or do they see conflict and you know, that there's no one, that everything is self-help and there's nothing above the state. Therefore, we have to be very security-seeking yeah. uh-uh. or power-seeking. And constructivist would say, well, we'll interpret the world in any number of ways and construct that world that, that yep. somehow... That instead of there's that the world is in fact constructed rather than some sort of reality about it.
0: And how does that then tie into your uh, the environmental model?
1: Well, a constructivist view would say that Germany and Japan are doing what they are doing because of they some sort of identity that they have in the meantime changed, not Mm -hmm. from militarism, but now they have this identity of pacifism. And I I think that's right. But, okay. I don't think it's, <laughs> but I don't think it's enough, right? It's not to just, enough. Yeah,
0: not enough to just, it's more, it's, it's, it would be an easy observation, but it would not really give well, you more that, depth or insight, so to say. No,
1: but you could say the constructivist view would fit in the environmentalist model, right? So it yeah. fits in the, the social part, maybe the governmental part. So it fits in there, but it's yeah. only one aspect. The environmental model looks at more. In other words, I thought that German and Japanese behavior was more complex than what constructivists were arguing. For example, in the case of um, international relations, at the end of the Cold War, there were still very many uh, Red Army troops, for example, in Eastern Germany, or that America was withdrawing. You have all these different kinds of things that were facts on the ground that may have nothing to do with their, their own identity.
0: Yeah which is more forced it's, upon them, right?
1: Right, so they have to take those things into cons- uh, consideration. So, basically, I was also critiquing real constructivism. <laughs> <But> that, <laughs> I mean, I wasn't critiquing constructivism, but I was trying to say that I thought the environment was much more complex. Than okay. Just looking at identity and how social norms may force states into thinking one way or another. Exactly. So I'm and if you know if you think about the courses you have taken with me most of my courses are always stressing complexity right the complexity <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. of policymaking why a state might decide to use violence which I do in my war and world politics course but also the way I present foreign policy in my American foreign policy course or even the really the the, the annoying complexity the too much complexity of how European foreign policy is made all these things I think I want to um, include all of that, which doesn't make learning easy. In fact, I think it makes learning harder.
0: I was about to say, because I think it it strikes me as you want to kind of, and like, kind of capture the whole complexity of things, but do you also think at the same time, of course, it's it's good to have a holistic view and a holistic explanation of what have you, these foreign policies, but at the same time, do you think it also can maybe um, flaw your analysis or flaw the, uh, the, well, accessibility of your research? No. So there's no such thing as too complex for you, I would say, then...
1: I mean, you you have to consider the whole of the environment, but I think that you still have to look at what might be the, the, not monocausal so much, but still the most important areas that are responsible for why you have a particular outcome. Mm -hmm. Now, what I think is often interesting is that students at UCM or even sometimes staff will say to me, well, you are the realist at UCM.
0: Is that a compliment for you or are you think <laughs>
1: No, I think it's I find it really strange why, why so? You, well, if you read any of my publications, you will see I'm always critiquing the realist point of view. And if anything, and you'll agree with me here, I've moved into believing that foreign policy is primarily driven by domestic politics. For example, that's why I very much like the selectorate model that you used in your research on yeah. Belarusian-Russian relations, Relations, yeah. I do think that the domestic realm and what leaders want to accomplish in the domestic realm is very tied to what they do the in the foreign realm. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. Or if you look at the research I did on uh, when the Uni- when the United States intervenes using its military. But intervenes using or using for humanitarian reasons. So using mm-hmm. its military for humanitarian reasons. I did some research on that, thinking about you know, why did the US go into Libya or but it didn't go into Rwanda or why did Clinton go into Haiti or you Kosovo. Know, why did it, why did what were the circumstances that the US intervenes for humanitarian reasons? And I think that very much points to it's very much a domestic. The, the model that I use there, the theory that I use there, is very much talking about how a domestic environment is driving, ultimately driving presidential decision-making. Or even the article that I wrote that came out this month, on the 4th of March, that's on uh, Donald Trump and his foreign policy. Mm-hmm. I said that domestic politics and presidential management style were- Are influencing- Yes, or the keys to explain his failure.
0: So then, that's that's components of the environmental model, right? If I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, well,
1: it, yeah. well, it's looking at the complexity again. Yeah. Of not, I'm not saying that realists is not right. That it may be something important to learn about that, but I don't. I find it odd if someone says, "I'm the realist," when everything I'm working Doing
0: on is not realism.
1: <laughs> it's not realism. It's all these other explanations. <laughs> And I think that the source of this is a little bit that I still think it's super important for you as a student to understand the foundational ideas of the discipline of international relations.
0: Which includes you, realism, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: if you, don't, if you don't understand those ideas yeah. and how they were developed... And how their theoretical shortcomings are also there? Then how can you go on to to talk about any theories that have developed from
0: from these theories? Yeah, yeah. I was about to say because maybe neoclassical um, realism could maybe then capture more this domestic component, but um, no, I completely agree that it's important, right? To kind of have your 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 basic knowledge on these theories ready before you kind of go into to other theories or other disciplines. Uh, uh, uh.
1: But well, I think that often people forget the role of theory.
0: I know that. Yeah, <laughs> I've noticed that. That you <laughs> kind of emphasize that. <laughs> but why is why do you think it's so important that like for for because for me first maybe I thought it's more about you know for example your dissertation you're writing about the German uh, Germany and uh, Japan uh, on their foreign policy and then for me maybe first I would say it's more important and also more fun maybe to write on just uh, the well, the, the discourse of these countries, but why, how then does this theoretical uh, uh, component come into play in academia? And why is it so important in, in, uh, uh, or define, ac- why does it define academia in, in such way?
1: Well, certainly the social sciences, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe, maybe in in, in humanities, so you don't need quite so many theories, but you still are, are looking for patterns or you still are looking to explain things, even yeah. in the humanities context. But theories, you have to remember, they are created... To explain the behavior that the scientist is observing. Right? Exactly. So, and, yeah. and all sorts of factors might intervene to undermine behavioral science observations. So we, the things that we're observing are not easily replicated in a lab, right?
0: No, no, no. Exactly. No.
1: <laughs> so theories, theories are, in fact, our best guesses. Yeah. And... If you view theory as a the best guess, then you could start treating theory as the tool that tries to have you understand the behavior that you're observing.
0: So, so in a way, theory. so in a way, theories are, are like the social scientist's it's lab or or experiments, whatever, what have you.
1: Well, they're trying to give, they're trying to provide order to the chaos of everyday life. <laughs>
0: That's a very theoretical sentence, like straight out of the textbook.
1: <laughs> well, but if you think about it, internet, international relations theory is not a blueprint, or it's not a gospel that explains all no, 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 exactly. yeah. all the time. But the idea is that you are you're creating uh, an explanation to say, "Well, I have observed this, and I think these are the forces driving what I observe."
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And you remember that the people who are making theory, these persons normally are those who think deeply about a topic for a very long time. They, they fear the, the thoughts that they write, the theory that they might advance. It becomes mainstream because it resonates with others yeah. who feel like, yes, this framework explains the ha- behavior that I also observe
0: yeah, so it's there. There needs to be like a kind of common ground, right? Where you to, to for theory to become mainstream, like people need to well, comply with it in a sense.
1: Well, independent of observations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, the phenomenon that's happening in the world is going to happen. It just happens. Yeah. <laughs> the phenomenon that people study and develop a theory, the policy processes—they exist in the world. So our job as policy scholars or or scientists in the social sciences, our job is to do our best to observe this phenomenon and then communicate what we see as accurately as we can in the hopes of uncovering some insights that are as close as possible to the reality in which we live, right? So I see, when the U S intervenes, I look at the whole history of the U S and say, okay, it intervened a dozen times over the whole history of its world. Mm -hmm. What was common about those interventions? What do I see within happening in America? What do I see happening globally? What do I see? So I'm looking at the whole environment and then I'm saying, well, these factors were key more often than they're not. I can create a theory based on those observations that, Oh, Well, actually, the domestic environment is key to when the U.S. intervenes in these cases.
0: I see. So, I mean, it makes sense, right? It's like this kind of backbone or or red line in... in and things that we see that kind of helps us and guides us in, in, in explaining it um but apart from of course this is very important in, in academic contributions right and writing academic contributions um but you also write more well, so to say conventional columns or um, partake in discussion panels and how do you think is this this different from academia and um like do you think it's more fun or, or is it as important as um, writing academic contributions
1: Yes, I, 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 it's true. I, I have, I do think it's fun, and I do feel privileged that I have a platform to be able to to voice these things.
0: Mm-hmm. Because it's pretty different, right, than than writing the academic contributions. I would say.
1: Yes, I mean, I actually I think when I write academically, I'm not very jargon. Well, and I'll take that back. But, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. And I suppose it's because it's the teacher in me. And if you look closely at my columns that I write for uh, Elsevier-Weckblad, most of them are about some comment or observation that I make about the a wider historical context of events that I'm observing today. And then I'm trying to explain. So my reaction is, oh, I've seen this before. Let me put this in a greater context. 100%. Or let me explain this to you. You, you think this, but you're, you're not you're quite not the <laughs> No, you're not seeing the whole picture. Yeah, okay.
0: So, so, <laughs> it's not a word for saying you're wrong, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but then you say it's. And I used to think that I, and I have been told by academic, other academics that my writing was too journalistic somehow. That I w- I didn't write in a jargon way because I don't like it when people write that 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 a, a person who doesn't know that it's we difficult for other people to read the to normal read. person yeah, yeah. to read a non academic person to read. Yeah, but then. I saw that Elsevier Rehklad on their American Dreamers website, they created a whole new category on their website for me called academic. (laughs) And then, and so you see at the bottom of their page. And sometimes I do hear that people think that I'm writing about topics that they're unfamiliar with, or that I write in ways that take some level of knowledge for granted. So I do think that, um, there is a problem with me sort of being steeped in foreign policy, right? So I have all these books on George W. Bush's foreign policy and Obama's foreign policy and Trump's foreign policy. So I'm reading all this, these books or I'm reading articles or I'm reading on the foreign policy website. I have a subscription. So in my head, I'm living in foreign policy. Yeah and then when i try to tell that to other people then uh, maybe i'm assuming a level of understanding that's not always there
0: and that's you think that's essential to kind of not assume right because you're you're kind of trying to inform a broader audience who maybe does not have this prior knowledge i would say
1: well i i do have editors so if okay. if they think it's so beyond a general audience i think they would tell me and but I try I tried very hard to to keep it at an at a, at accessible level. That's what I'm trying to do., yeah. but so but for me, it's it's all about solving puzzles or making explanations, whether it's solving foreign policy puzzles or if it's solving uh, the day to day issues of or explaining to a Dutch audience what's happening in America. that's that's what I'm trying to do.
0: Yeah, because you're you're still writing a lot on America, right, on the U.S. and on U.S. policy. Have you never had like the um, desire to maybe go back to the U.S. and pursue your career there, your academic career?
1: Oh, well, at, at different times I thought about going back to the U.S., but I must say I'm very happy in my position here. I re- very much enjoy working for UCM. Um, I have been able to uh, step up the career ladder into, to be one of the few professors that are actually grown in a, a liberal arts and science context. So I have no – um, I want to stay. I like very much what I'm, what I'm doing and where I'm at.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's – I mean, uh, understandable. I think it's a wonderful college. Um, but it would never – like, you never had the idea also to – Teach in a faculty that maybe completely focuses on, on foreign policy and transatlantic relations, or you think that like um well, the liberal arts college gives you enough space to, to, to practice your, your desires?
1: Well, it is true from a professional point of view I am hindered by being in a little arts college. Mm-hmm. That's, you know that's, We're having an honors program for bachelor's students. Okay. But we don't, we're now, we're getting into having more PhDs. Uh, and I will do, I will have PhD students to supervise. But it does, it has hindered me. And I don't have the normal support that a department would give
0: no, exactly. someone in
1: my position. So I don't have colleagues who are doing what I'm doing. But at the same time, I have to say that it has also helped me be innovative.
0: In what ways, Lee?
1: Well, if I had had if I been in a department, I might have been discouraged or t- told that well, I couldn't use some of the models that I was using to explain foreign policy because those models came from public policy. And it, in the past, it seemed that even though you might be in a political science department, the public policy scholars who are looking at, you know, health policy or 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 air policy, you know, all these different things, they didn't have anything to do with the people who were doing foreign policy. But I wanted to describe, I wanted to explain what I thought was happening. For example, with uh, why the United States invaded Iraq in two thousand and three, I wanted to explain mm-hmm. that. And so I thought, oh, and I, I do what I tell my students all the time. I looked around all the theories and models that were out there that would help me explain the behavior that I saw was going on in the Bush White House, in the George W. Bush White House. And the one that I landed on was the advocacy coalition framework, which mm-hmm. is a public policy model.
0: Which you learned as you see them. No, 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 no. <laughs> I
1: was just, I just did a, I just did research <clears throat> about theories and models. Okay, so fair I, enough. So I was thinking, what which which theoretical which which um, methodological tools have been developed by other people that would help me explain what I saw was going on in the United States and the decision to invade Iraq? And I thought the embassy coalition framework did it because it really allowed me to look at the different. Um, people within the Bush White House who were arguing for different policies, right? Yeah. And the neoconservatives were this coalition of this group of people who won. And I wanted to say, why did they win? Mm-hmm. So so, I, so I, I published that in, in 2015. And then, uh, no, actually earlier than that. And then it came, then people started to read it and actually it took me a while to get it published because most places that are doing international relations, publications and foreign policy, they didn't want it. Because okay. it was it didn't fit into the normal idea of what scholarship in foreign policy was like. Yeah. But I didn't I didn't know that, right? I wasn't in an apartment was <laughs> telling me, Don't don't do this crazy research because no one wants it. It's it's too different from all the other research.
0: Everyone let's at UCM was like, Yeah, let's do it. It's different. Let's do it.
1: <laughs> no, nobody at UCM even I knew it. <laughs> I'm just I was just sending this out to journals, getting rejections. <laughs> And trying again, and you know, using the what the referees would say, and changing it, and sending it off again, until finally I found where it landed. But after it was published, people started discovering it, and then my research became cutting edge. <laughs> and I was invited to be part of a group of innovative foreign policy thinkers
0: because you were and using different, po- like different theories. That's that's really- I was
1: using models that were used in public policy and applied them to foreign policy. And so then my research was highlighted in the Oxford Research Encyclopedia of Politics as an example of employing a policy model in an innovative way. And then I was also highlighted in a text that was called Foreign Policy Analysis and Public Policy Approaches Bridging the Gap. So there were other people doing what I was doing, and now i'm if other scholars are using these policy models to explain foreign policy now i get to be in their literature reviews right they refer okay, to my work okay, yeah. <laughs> because i did groundbreaking research so, and oh, I, also right. was in, I was also invited to be on the editorial board of the most important journal in my discipline foreign policy analysis because of the innovation of my research so the good thing is I was pushed, or I didn't have anyone telling me what I was doing. I shouldn't do because I was somewhere where I wasn't in a in a normal departmental setting.
0: Yeah. So in that sense, like it kind of gives you. I mean, in in a sense, as you said, you might not have the specialized funds or like staff or whatever you. Um, but in the other sense, I mean, you're also free, right? I mean, this example kind of shows that you're more autonomous in the sense that you can do what you think it's right. And in this this case, it actually worked out pretty well, I would say.
1: Yeah, and I in fact, I've gone forward with uh, the Abbasi coalition framework, and I'm currently working on a, a article discussing Obama's um, uh, intervention in Libya, also using the Abbasi coalition framework. And I have two very nice uh, junior teaching fellows at UCM who are being my research assistants, and we're going to code lots of information uh, to fit into this advocacy coalition framework, so.
0: So you're you're building the new infrastructure then for for foreign policy, I would say.
1: Well, I have been. I also was invited to uh, Denver, where the the people who sort of put this this advocacy coalition framework model together, they they're going to have a, a conference just on people because this, this this model has been used. I don't know, maybe over 200 times in different different uh, for different policy studies, explanations. Yeah. Different studies, but not very many um, foreign policy ones. But I have been invited to to uh, to join this this group of scholars, so that's also very exciting.
0: Yeah, Do you, is that also an aspect of being an academic? Because I've spoken to quite a few academics before now, and I think a lot of them they appreciate like this um, <clears> or <throat> well, international, um, well, the international relations kind of with other scholars and the conferences and panels and whatever. Is that something you? Uh, enjoy now after like um, more years after your, your dissertation that you kind of can pick the fruits of this, like uh, a few years later?
1: Well, when I have been able to go, I mean, the conferences, the last you know 18 months have been canceled, but mm-hmm. when I have been able to go, it re- I really find it as a um, motivating or rejuvenating experience to go to conferences. Yeah. Then I hear other people and I'm able to, let's say, give comments or, or uh, receive comments or, yeah, to, be, to have a dialogue with people. And I always feel like, okay, it sort of validates me. It's like, oh, I'm not too bad. I <laughs> in and contribute to this. And people are, are excited about the, the worst work that I'm doing. So it, I find it always really rejuvenating. And I come back filled with a lot of energy because I realize that what I'm doing is contributing and a part of something and that what I'm doing is advancing. And I like that very much. Yeah, I think I, can, I hope I can get back to that soon. Yeah,
0: I think we'll all hope that. Uh, on that's on the same note, uh, maybe a more uh, uh, logistic question on your dissertation, because after all, it's still uh, PhDs for dummies. Um, I had a question on like what, uh, because a lot of people actually struggle with their uh, their motivation or energy during their PhD, during writing their dissertation. Um, did you have any specific um, well, dynamics or, or tips or uh, any comments on how to be stay motivated?
1: Well, for me i'm i'm always very genuinely driven by solving puzzles i want to understand things i want to, i want to know what's behind them mm-hmm. and when I, for my dissertation i had already spent 3 years in germany before i wrote my dissertation so mm-hmm. i was truly interested in german foreign policy and in fact i would say i still am very interested in german foreign policy and from time to time, I think, well, I'd like to go back to it and do more research in, in that again, uh, but I have, I seem to have more gone more in the direction of transatlantic relations and American foreign policy, uh, and European foreign policy rather than just German foreign policy. Well, but now I would still... be a good
0: now would be a good time, right, to go back to German foreign policy.
1: Yes, now that there's going to be a, a sea change with Merkel exiting and, and what in September, exactly. yeah. So no, I, I always think. I mean. And then it's always this question of time, right? <laughs> I have to <laughs> prioritize myself. And it would take me, I think, some time to get back into understanding everything about German foreign policy again. But yeah. I, I think I'm just driven by uh, by wanting to, to understand things. So more, intri- so
0: was- more an intrinsic motivation, I would say then? Yes. So then that would be uh, kind of the thing that if you start a PhD or dissertation, just make sure that you are kind of have this intrinsic motivation for your subject or for your field
1: and I, but i think you can also um um build a fire of of mm-hmm. yep. because when you you start realizing that you know about something and then maybe you want to add to that knowledge and then it's 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 sort of it's it's the small decisions you make to add to your knowledge that somehow then can you know, put some tinder into that fire
0: yeah yeah that yeah. that kind of builds up together to uh in the end, like this grand bonfire that you're actually super motivated on uh, on the subject. Yeah.
1: And then when people ask you to uh, give their your, your opinion on it, that also then you wanna make sure. I mean, I always want to make sure I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's handy, right? It. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's the extrinsic part. I don't wanna to be to look foolish if people <laughs> have that faith in me. I wanna make sure that it's well deserved. <laughs> like for example, I just um, Gave a lecture at the NATO Defense College in Rome last week, and so I gave my little forty-minute talk, and then afterwards, there's the Q and A. But I wanted to make sure that I mean, these are there were like a hundred, some over a hundred senior officers that were listening into this um, to my to the Q and A mm-hmm. and the, the lecture that I'd given. That's pretty. You can't come to that audience and pretend
0: that you know your shit. <laughs>
1: So I I, I yeah I did I did my homework. I, I um some of the things they asked me I wasn't sure about because they were quite the well the questions were very diverse and I had it's it's not like sometimes you get the ch- questions before and so you can prepare a little bit. I didn't have any questions before. Yeah. I so can anyways, see that. It was challenging.
0: Well, I mean it's challenging but I at the same time I figured that it, it it's fun, right? To to kind of be able to speak to these people and to inform them and to have a conversation with them. Uh, isn't that yes. isn't that at the end of the day kind of i mean not what it's all about but i mean that's the thing in, in our discipline at least that you're kind of know like figuring out okay like i'm doing a good job yeah
1: <laughs> yeah it's some validation it's true, yeah. hard work is worth it
0: fair enough um okay uh, for finally um we always end the, the episode um with all well, a question uh, uh which is that um which moment during your phd um do you appreciate the most in hindsight so uh what like a specific moment or, or, or a specific memory? Um, maybe you can give a comment on that.
1: Well, I sort of already alluded to this. Okay. <laughs> uh, that I, I told you that when I came to Maastricht, I, I found out that I was pregnant.
0: Okay, fair enough.
1: So I went back to the US, to Penn State, to, to um, State College, Pennsylvania, and defended my dissertation uh, in June of 1978, five months pregnant.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: And for somehow that was really special for me, right? My son William was yeah. there with me. It felt like a celebration of womanhood. Yeah, it also felt like a celebration of my marriage to another academic, son Duke. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really good memory for me. No, I pregnant... I, I can
0: figure it <laughs> uh, out. Uh, makes, it makes a lot of sense, right?
1: Yeah, the, the pregnant me standing up and defending my research on German and Japanese foreign policy.
0: <laughs> no, I think it's wonderful. I think it's a very nice, uh, nice memory, actually. Uh, uh... Okay. Um, yeah. Well, for that, Roberta, uh, thank you so much for for, um, for being on the show. I think it was a great talk. And, um, well, uh, hopefully we see each other soon.
1: Thanks so much, Sam. And good luck on your final exams. And thanks so much for putting this podcast together.
0: Thank you. Well, after that remark of Roberta, I know you guys are all wondering, how did Sam's his exams go? Well, they went wonderful. They went great. So um, for that, you don't have to worry. Um, on the matter of the, of the talk, I thought it was a very good talk. Uh, I really, really enjoyed it with Roberta. I think she, she has so much knowledge on uh, international relations and foreign policy. And I think it's, uh, she's unique in the sense that um, she emphasizes theory so much and that she really um, well, believes, and with right, rightfully so, um, that it's the, the most important tool of uh, social scientists. Besides that, I think uh, she made a very good contribution by saying that the motivation for a PhD um, does not have to come at once but you kind of build this up and eventually you have this big bonfire of motivation basically which kind of drags you through your PhD Uh, and I think that's a very realistic um, perspective for people that want to pursue a PhD. On the show, on PhD for Dummies, uh, this was the 6th episode, and I kind of decided for myself that the first season would be uh, 6 episodes, Um, but I'll continue, and uh, for next week I have another talk with uh, a nutritious uh, PhD candidate, um, which will be very different, but very interesting too. Um, So stay tuned, and uh, thank you so much for listening.